This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Romans. Man, uh, you were waiting for something, weren't you? I know. Uh, But uh, we've just been going verse by verse through the book of Romans together. If you missed anything so far, you can get caught up on our website. Or I would encourage you to download the Hui Kala app to your mobile device if you don't have it yet. Because not only will you get caught up on previous messages that you might have missed, but also for today's message, you can download the notes to your mobile device. Uh, There's a button there. If you click on uh, Romans, click on today's message, click on the button that says fill in notes. It pops open a web browser. You'll see a list of all the notes of everything we're going to cover today. All the scripture references are all there uh, within the app. And so I'd encourage you, if you don't yet have that, download that. That might be helpful to you. Otherwise, just grab a sheet of paper and jot down some thoughts as we go through this uh, incredible passage of Scripture this morning, uh, Romans chapter 1. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, thanks for being here. We're delighted to have you as our guest. Uh, We're delighted that you would take a Sunday morning and worship Jesus together with us. If you're looking for a church home, I think the best church since the book of Acts is uh, who we call it. So I think you'd be uh, right at home here uh, jumping in with us. People say that I might be biased thinking we're the best church since the book of Acts. I might be biased, but it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. And so um, just throw that out there anyways. Uh, but uh, no, we're delighted to have you with us here today. I'm uh, thankful for your worship in Jesus with us. We'll say this, preface to today's message. We're in a really difficult passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 1. Uh, and let me just say here, as the weeks go on, it's only going to get deeper and deeper and deeper and harder and harder and heavier and heavier uh, because that's just the way this passage is. Uh, again, I think if we were to read through this passage of Scripture, we could come away and think that like the Apostle Paul wrote this like six months ago to tell us to get our act together because that's how applicable it is to our society today. Uh, everything that we're taking a look at in this passage is everything that we're dealing with as a culture as a society together. So uh, again, because of that, it's, uh, it's very heavy. Also, if you're ever in a Bible preaching church like Hui Kala, where we just say what the Bible says, you no doubt will come across passages of Scripture that are difficult to hear. Uh, that are hard to process through. Uh, it's easy for us to, uh, to rally against other people's sin. You know, those uh, people that don't believe in God, those people that are steeped in uh, egregious sin. It's harder for us to hear preaching on our own sin. Uh, last Sunday night, or Sunday night before last, we talked about the love of money uh, from the book of James. Uh, that was kind of hard because, uh, again, for some of us that are attached maybe to material things of this world, it's hard for us to, to process through that. But I encourage you this. When you hear hard stuff from the Bible, first of all, evaluate, is this from the Bible? And if the answer to that is yes, you just need to ask God to change your heart. And I want to help you with a little bit of tidbit before we jump into to today's message. Anytime your feelings disagree with the Bible, always remember this, your feelings are wrong. 100% of the time. So I've got to ask God to shape and mold my heart to come in line with what the Bible says. That's what God expects from us uh, as Bible-believing Christians. So I want to encourage you to do that. Take a look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 13 just for sake of context, but we're really going to spend our time in verses 19 and 20 here today. I've entitled today's message, God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. Romans chapter 1, verse number 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes... I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit amongst you also, even as among the Gentiles. 
I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Our church was really young at the time, probably 18 months or so old, and uh, Hui Kala turns nine years old this October. It's going to be an awesome time together. Next year is our 10-year celebration. We got folks from all over the world who have been a part of Hui Kala over the last uh, nine years that are coming back for our 10-year anniversary. So if you're leaving before then, you got to come back because it's going to be awesome, okay? Uh, but uh, nine years old uh, this October... I remember we were probably 18 months or so old, and there, there was a, uh, a couple who had become coming to our church that they were dating at the time, and his name was Mike. And uh, I try to read people as, as, uh, as I, I see people coming to church. I always pay attention to, are, are people singing? Are they engaged? Are they paying attention? As I preach, uh, I try to read people. Hey, are they engaged? Are they listening to the message? Is it connecting in some way? Uh, and so this couple, again, our church was small at the time. There was probably maybe 30 or 40 people in the auditorium, so it was kind of easy to read people uh, at that time. And so this guy totally checked out altogether, wasn't paying attention, staring at the ceiling, looking at the, the dirt that was hanging from the rafters, and kind of looking around. His girlfriend, on the other hand, had a, had a Bible that was open. It was marked up, highlighted, circled, notes. Everything I would say, she was writing down. She was turning the passages of Scripture and looking up stuff. She was marking her Bible as I was preaching. I mean, she was like 100% dialed in, but he was totally checked out. And so uh, I, I talked to him after the service, and uh, I asked her, I said, hey, has there been a time in your life where you accepted Christ as Savior? And she said, I got saved when I was a teenager, really grew in my faith in college, and now that I'm, a, I'm an adult and living on my own, trying to come into my faith and really own it and make it my own. And, and I said, man, great, I can tell that you, you, know, you love the Word. I mean, your Bible's all marked to pieces. She was like, man, I'm in the Bible every day just trying to grow. And I asked him, I said, hey, how about you? Has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? And he goes, No. Okay, uh, so uh, anyways, uh, glad you guys are here, and so keep coming back. Uh, I, I told him, I said, hey, keep coming, have an open heart, listen to the preaching. Uh, I, I think you'll be encouraged by, by what you hear, and, and maybe you'll come to a point where maybe you and I can sit down and talk about stuff. He said, okay. He continued to come back for probably three or four weeks, and I said to him, his name was Mike, uh, Mike, we should grab lunch sometime and just talk, man. I want to hear your story, what's on your mind, and stuff like that. He said, man, sounds good. So we made an appointment to, to go uh, sit down and talk, and so we, uh, we grabbed uh, lunch over here on Keiomoku Street. Uh, we sit down, we're not five minutes into to lunch, and I said, uh, so Mike, you said that you, there's never been a time where you've been born again. I said, talk to me about that. He says, I'm an atheist. I said, okay, when did that start for you? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you weren't born an atheist. When did you stop believing in God? And he sat there for a minute, and he goes, I was probably 14 or 15. Okay, tell me about that. And so we began to talk, and he said uh, he'd grown up in church his whole life. Uh, his parents were very involved in church in their youth ministry. Uh, and uh, he said every Wednesday night was our youth worship service. 
he said, my parents led that. My mom led the music and my dad did the preaching. And he said, man, they were like rock stars. I mean, we would have a full auditorium and, and the, the, the whole show, everything. He said, people just wanted to be near my parents. And my parents were, uh, man, huge figures in our church and were well respected by every, everyone in our community. People really looked up to them. Okay? He goes, but the problem is, the second that they got in the car on Wednesday night, it was like somebody turned a light switch off. And he goes, they'd been getting to bicker and fight. My dad began to curse and be really ugly to my mom. My dad was an alcoholic, but nobody knew it. He was verbally abusive to my mom and to, to me and my brothers. And he goes, but then come Wednesday night, it was like somebody flipped the light switch back on. And they became these like super Christians. And he goes, and I realized at that moment, this is all a show. Everybody here is just playing the part they're supposed to play in this big, huge show for a God that doesn't exist. And man, that broke my heart to hear that. And I said, Mike, I just want to tell you, first of all, on behalf of Christians, like real deal Bible believing Christians, I'm sorry. On behalf of God, I want to tell you that God's sorry that you had to see that. But that's not biblical Christianity. That's not, that's not how this thing works. The whole idea is what you see is what you get with Christians. Hypocrisy was something that was condemned by Jesus himself. And what you saw wasn't biblical Christianity. And I said to him, do you think that I'm a fake and a hypocrite? And here's what he said. He said, no, you know what? He goes, something's different about you and something's different about who we call it. He goes, that's why I keep coming back. Because I see something that I've never seen before in my life. He said, these people really believe it and they live their life by it. And I say that, not, again, not to toot my horn, but to say this, for all of the atheists that are out there, first of all, they really believe that there's something out there. They just don't know what it is. Secondly, most of them are waiting and watching people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians and they're waiting for one of two reasons. Either to see you really live it out and own it and do what the Bible says, or more than likely they're watching to wait for you to fail so that you can be the stereotypical Christian who puts on a show, says that they're one thing, but it's actually another. But just know this, they're watching and they're waiting. When it comes to atheists, God has revealed himself to every single person. Every single person has the knowledge of God. And because of that, God doesn't believe in atheists. Romans chapter 1, verse number 20. Take a look at that in our text this morning. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now that's a really heavy uh, verse there because it says this, everybody knows that there's a God because he's revealed himself. Secondly, everybody sees God's power on display. And here's the really heavy part. Nobody has an excuse for not knowing of God because he's clearly revealed himself in all people. Here's the thing about God. The knowledge of God is universal. You take a look at any major world civilization throughout all of human history. There is a religious system. There is a religious structure built around the idea that there is someone in the sky that is overseeing all the events that are taking place in all of human history. 
Again, if there were 3,000 different religious systems, there are 3,000 different explanations for who that person is. Again, if we take a look at the, even Hawaiian culture, Hawaiian culture had a pagan system and structure of a polytheistic faith, meaning multiple different gods. And different types of gods needed to be appeased in different ways. You take a look at Roman or Greek mythology of these idea of multiple gods up there in the, the heavens doing multiple jobs. You take a look at uh, even things like Native American and they would uh, do rain dances so that the rain god would send rain upon their crops so that they could actually have food to eat. Everybody knows there's something up there. We just don't know precisely what it is. God has also given us a moral law that's also universal. You take a look at, again, any major world civilization. Everyone knows it's wrong to kill. Everyone knows it's wrong to lie. Everyone knows it's wrong to steal. Who taught those things? We don't have to teach our children to sin. They automatically know to do that. We don't have to teach our children to lie. They automatically try to cover up their lies. Even kids as young as two or three years old will double down on lies that they've told because they know that they've done wrong and they're trying to cover it up. Who told them that? The knowledge of God told them that. Who, who told the, the person that's in a, a remote tribe in Africa somewhere that it's wrong to have sex with another man's wife? Who told them that? The law of God says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife but they've never read the Bible, precisely. If you're still in Romans, turn over to Romans chapter two. We're gonna to get to this uh, in a couple months, I'll say. Uh, Romans chapter two, verse number 14. Take a look at this. For when the Gentiles, Romans chapter two, verse 14, for when the Gentiles, those are people who are not Christians, don't have a knowledge of God, which have not the law, do by nature the things that are contained in the law, these, having not the law, are law unto themselves. In other words, they don't have the Ten Commandments that, like it was given to Moses. How do they know it's wrong to lie? How do they know it's wrong to steal? How do they know it's wrong to kill? How do they know it's, it's wrong to, you know, take someone else's wife? Verse 15, which shows the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So their conscience already tells them right from wrong because God's written his law on their heart. Again, when children sin, they immediately try to cover it up by lies. I remember me and my brother were throwing a baseball in the house. We'd been told not to throw baseballs in the house. We broke a lamp. You know what we tried to do? We tried to put the lamp in the closet. <laughs> do you think that worked? Absolutely not. Because it's like, hey, where'd the lamp go? I don't know. No, it was here 10 minutes ago. Where is it? I don't know. Nobody ever sat me down and gave me a course on, okay, if you break the lamp, sweep up all the parts, put it in the closet, cover it up with clothes in the closet. When you're ever asked what happened, say, I don't know. Nobody taught me that. I knew how to sin, but I also knew that what I did was wrong. How? God's law has been written on our hearts. So everyone has the knowledge of God. You might say that there is no God, 
You, you might be agnostic and say, there may be a God, but I'm not sure who he is or what he expects from us. But everyone knows that we didn't get here by accident and there's somebody up there that is in charge. Again, we can create whatever religious structure we want to to explain that, but everybody knows that that is true because God's revealed it. So the interesting thing about God is that God desires to be known. God doesn't want it to be a secret that he's this nameless, faceless being up there that maybe we should give animal sacrifice to. Maybe we should uh, put together some, some food and put it on a plate and burn some candles and that'll make him happy. Maybe he just wants us to live a good life. Maybe he wants us to uh, uh, avenge all the wrong in the world. Maybe he wants us to just be happy. We don't know. God wants to be known and he wants you to know what he expects from you. God doesn't desire to be a secret. God doesn't desire to be a mystery. God doesn't desire to be distant and not able to be found. God wants to be known. And here's the awesome part about God. God wants to know you. So, God had to make a way for himself to be known. He had to make a way for you to know him. And so he chose to reveal himself. John chapter 1, verse number 9 talks about God being the light and that men came into darkness. And John chapter 1, verse number 9 says, And this was that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God's given us, every person, a light inside of them that gives us the knowledge of God. That when things get dark, we recognize that there is someone somewhere higher than us that has the answers that our soul craves. We just struggle sometimes to connect the dots. When it comes to atheism, atheism is either a learned behavior or it's a result of rebellion against God. We have the opportunity as a church to partner with Youth for Christ. Uh, Youth for Christ is a nationwide, uh, it's a parachurch, meaning they're not aff directly affiliated with a, a local church, a parachurch organization uh, that goes into public schools and, and creates public school Christian clubs. Uh, we, we're a part of the McKinley uh, High School Christian Club over there. Uh, sometimes we're able to, to provide lunch for the kids over there. Sometimes we're able to go and, and preach the gospel over there. Sometimes we go over there and hand out Bibles or hand out copies of uh, Paid in Full, which is a gospel presentation in a book form. But man, what a golden opportunity to be able to go into one of the godless places in America, the public school system, and preach Jesus. It's incredible. Like you go in the, they meet in the, the, the choir room over there. You go and you got 40 kids in there and you're able to stand up and say, Jesus died for sinners and you're a sinner. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can be saved today. I mean, these kids, while they identify as, quote, Christian because they believe in God, they don't know the first thing about the gospel or being saved or what that means. And to be able to sit down with kids and, sh and lead them to Jesus Christ and give them a Bible and to hand out Bibles and hand out gospel tracts, man, in a public school, man, sign me up for that. And so we partner together on a monthly basis financially. We pray for them and help support that in any way that we can. We had, uh, did have the opportunity during COVID to, to get into the schools, but they continue to do their ministry online and things like that. But incredible opportunity. For McKinley High School Christian uh, Club, basically at the beginning of the year, they have this uh, club enrollment week at the beginning of the school year where they, all the different clubs kind of advertise what they got going on, and you can join the math club, or you can join the, uh, the chess club, or uh, the, the reading group, or something like that, nerd clubs, I guess. Uh, but um, I'm just seeing if you're still awake this morning. Uh, 
high school, I wasn't great in high school, I'll, I'll just give you that. But uh, anyways, uh, we have the Bible Club, or the Christian Club. And so our church uh, printed up these beautiful bookmarks that said Christian Club, meeting in the choir room, uh, lunchtime on every Tuesday, and uh, on the back, it flips over, there's a, a Bible verse uh, on the back, and stuff like that. And so we're handing them out, encouraging kids to, to join up for the Christian Club. And so kids come by and say, hey man, join us for the Christian Club, we got lunch every, every Tuesday, uh, come and join us. And this one kid, he's probably, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, walked past and I said, hey man, you, you want to join up with the Christian Club with us? He goes, no, I'm an atheist. And I said, who told you that? And he stopped. He goes, what? I said, who told you you were an atheist? He goes, my parents. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted him to know, you didn't come up with that on your own. A 14-year-old doesn't look at the world the way it exists today and say to himself, hmm, I bet we're all here by accident. All of this means nothing, and we're just blobs of mass hurtling through space. Because there is no God and there's no meaning to life. No 14-year-old thinks that, guaranteed. Somebody somewhere has told them all of this is not true. All of this is a lie. We are just blobs of mass hurtling through space. Be as happy as you can be. Grab as much as you can because this is all we get because there is no God. Somebody told them that because you didn't come up with that on your own. So when it comes to the outright denial of God, you either learned it or you've chosen to rebel against God. Over the course of pastoring, I've done a lot of research on atheism, where it comes from, how people uh, can be so set against something. The, the, the interesting thing for me is the people that are vehemently against God as atheists, like do everything in their power uh, to, to trounce the name of God, to remove God's name from everywhere. But it, it's always interesting to me to someone who would give their life's work to fighting against a, quote, fictional being. Like, I don't know of anybody who crusades so hard against Santa Claus. I don't know of anybody who crusades so hard against the tooth fairy. Like, I'm going to give my life's work to, to hate on everybody who believes in the tooth fairy and prove that the tooth fairy does not exist. Why? Because people don't devote so much energy to fictional beings. They just don't. Because somewhere along the way, again, unscientific studies that I've done, just a lot of books that I've read, a lot of online articles that I've read, a lot of forums that I've, that, I've, that I've read through. Majority of people somewhere along the way needed God to come through for them in a specific way. And when he didn't, they immediately flipped the switch and said, well, God must not be real. I get it. I was a nine-year-old boy. My grandmother had lung cancer. This is back in like the early 80s when they used to still tell you like smoking doesn't cause anything bad. It's good for you, right? She was a lifelong smoker. She was in her early 40s. She got lung cancer. She got a tumor on her brain. I remember as a kid, nine years old, praying my guts out that God would save my granny, and she died. I get it. If you don't understand the Bible and you don't understand how life works, it's easy to say, wow, God really let me down. God really left me hanging like the time that I needed God the most and I begged for him to do what I wanted to do. He didn't. It's easy to look at that and go, wow, God must not be real. Other people have come to, to a point in, in time in life where they recognize if God is true, then I must be accountable to him. I have to do what he says or else I stand in danger of his judgment. It's a lot easier to say, that's not true. I don't believe it to be so than it is to say, it is true now I'm on the hook for it. But here's the fact of the matter. No one is born an atheist. God has revealed himself unto every person so that they are without excuse. God reveals himself, first of all, through creation. Verse 20 tells us. 
We refer to this as general revelation. You can look at the earth, you can look at the planet and see that God exists. God is real. When you wake up in the morning, the sun is up. For some of us that rise earlier than the sun, we get to see the sun come up. You wake up and it's dark. But we know that the sun's coming up, guaranteed. As much as there is breath in your lungs, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and the sun will be there. That's an evidence that there is someone that created this giant ball of gas that burns forever. Think about this for a second. We're able now with with technology to be able to harness the energy of the sun and to take the sun and create electricity from it that we can use to power our gadgets and gadgets and run our refrigerators from, from just the power of the sun. It's a giant ball of gas in the middle of the universe that we have now harnessed to provide electricity. But here's the thing. Somebody had to create this giant ball of gas that doesn't need to be recharged, that doesn't need to have a power supply attached to it, that just continues to burn and burn and burn. And think about this for a minute. Imagine this. We wake up tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., and the sun didn't come up. I think that's kind of strange. Maybe my watch is off. Maybe it's uh, something weird's going on. Noontime, sun's still not up. Gets to be four or five o'clock in the afternoon, still pitch black. And we're not in somewhere like Alaska. We're like in, in Hawaii, right? No sun today. And we realize the sun's not coming up. And then we wait till tomorrow morning and the sun doesn't come up again. Here's a question for you Who do you call and report that problem to? I mean, think about it for a sec. Like your internet goes out, you call Spectrum. Hey, my internet's out. Oh, we got an outage in your neighborhood. It should be back up an hour. Okay, great. The electricity goes out. Oh, we had a call, Hawaiian Electric. We had a blown transformer over on this street. We're looking to get it back up. Good. You got problems. There's always somebody to call because somebody's always in charge of it, right? How do we have this thing like the sun that nobody's in charge of? It's just out there. Burning for eternity. Nobody's in charge of it. Nobody created it. It's just out there. That just doesn't make sense. That's why Psalm 19, verse number one says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You look at the sun and you go, Wow, fascinating. Here's the thing it provides warmth for us. Here's the beauty of God's creation. People are smoking hot on the mainland right now, smoking hot. I talked to my dad uh, in Kentucky the other day. I said, how's the weather over there? He's like, man, it's hitting up near 100 degrees and about 80 to 90% humidity. He said, but it will not rain. It's just scorching everything here. What's it like for you? Huh, 82 and breezy. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating that this amazing big ball of gas out there creates atrocious conditions for one person, but gorgeous conditions for us? Like, whoever thought people would come to Hawaii in the middle of summer to cool off, right? Fascinating. But how is it that you go outside in the sun, and the sun, here's how crazy this is, the sun gives you vitamins through your skin to help you feel better. You get vitamin D by being out in the sun. Vitamin D fights against fatigue, depression, uh, and and a ton of other things. 
So I walk outside and this giant ball of gas in the universe provides me the vitamins that I need to not be sad. What? This giant ball of gas also shines upon food, trees, that I can walk out to a tree, pull an apple off, and just eat it. Where did it come from? From the rains that came down from the heavens, from the big giant ball of gas out there to some tree that just continues to produce itself again and again and again and again. And we don't have to plug the tree in. It just makes it. How, how has all this happened? How is all this possible? Hmm. There must be somebody out there that's thought through all this. If you're still in Romans, uh, in your Bible, turn back to the book of Acts chapter 12, uh, 14. I just read this in my Bible reading this morning, and I was just like, oh, man, this is so good. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse number uh, 8. We'll start back in verse number 8. Acts chapter 14, verse number 8. Paul and Barnabas are there in, uh, in the city of uh, Lystra. Uh, verse number eight, there sat a man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, unable to walk, being crippled from his mother's womb, had, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly, beholding him, perceived that he had faith to be healed. Paul said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt and walked. And when people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying the speech of Lyconia. The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men, and they call Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Again, time out for just a sec. People recognized something supernatural had happened, and what did they say? There's somebody up there that did this totally awesome thing, and his name is Jupiter. <laughs> what? And, and this guy who said it to be so must be mercurious, and now the gods have come down and walked with us. And then it goes on. Uh, verse number 13. And the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and would have done a sacrifice to the people. Hey, guys, the gods have come to visit. Let's make a massive sacrifice for them. Verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of, they rent their clothes, they tore their clothes and said, no, 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 no. Ran in among the people crying out and saying, sirs, why do you do these things? We're also men of like passions with you. And preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven, earth, and the sea, and all things that are therein. Guys, stop what you're doing. No, no, no. Don't worship us. Turn to the God who created all things. But then he goes on. Verse 16. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. He wanted to let everybody know what he had done and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Did you catch what happened there? God gives you and I food as a witness that he is existing and he is involved. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, the birds eat because your father feeds them. He's going to take care of you too. And so the fact that many of us today, after we are dismissed from, from church today, are going to go and have lunch, that lunch is evidence that God exists. Hopefully, most of us will be eating a dead animal that God's given us the ability to rise, kill, and eat. That's good. 
<laughs> I felt really bad. We were at a restaurant yesterday, uh, an amazing pizza place, incredible pizza place. And there's this family over here with what appeared to be malnourished children, and they were shoveling in salad like there was no tomorrow. And I thought, that's why these kids are skinny. Poor kids. But I mean, like no kid, no lie. They bought a big, huge bowl of salad. These kids are just like chowing. And I, I've never seen so much lettuce eaten in my entire life. And here's the worst part. The kids were still hungry. You know why? Because you're eating my food's food. Like, that, that's cow's food. But what are you doing? You're not supposed to eat that. I want to just slip the kid a burger in the bathroom or something. But I was going somewhere with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, back, back on track. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing about all that. Look. This is evidence, the fact that you and I will eat lunch today, that God has created something for you and I to sustain ourselves with. <laughs> Crazy thought. When God created on the sixth day, he was done after he spoke everything into existence. He sat back and he rested and created nothing else after that. So get this. If you and I have a burger today, that burger or steak that we have today will be a direct descendant of something that God created within the first six days of creation. Well, how did that happen? God sustains everything. Jesus Christ created and sustains all things. So the fact that Paul's saying here, the fact that you have food in your belly today is a witness that God exists. I read an incredible illustration several years ago about Helen Keller. Helen Keller was born uh, without sight, without hearing, without speech. And she had a, a woman by the name of Ann Sullivan who taught her in uh, the uh, story that I read says, through Ann Sullivan's tireless and selfless efforts, Helen Keller finally learned to communicate through touch and even learned how to talk. When Miss Sullivan first tried to tell Helen about God, the girl's response, Helen Keller, was that she already knew about him, she just didn't know what his name was. Isn't that interesting? You have a girl who has no sight, no hearing, no ability to communicate, but automatically knows, yeah, 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 I know who you're talking about. Tell me what his name is. Why? Because God has revealed himself in all people. You don't need sight. You don't need hearing to know that there is a God. But here's the thing about God. God doesn't only reveal himself, but he also reveals his power through creation. Turn back to Romans chapter 1, if you would, verse number 20. Verse number 19, Romans chapter 1, verse number 19, because that which is maybe known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. God showed him everything that, that people need to know about himself. For the invisible things of him are, of the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. People look and see and understand that there is a creator, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they're without, without excuse. That phrase, Godhead, is a, another word we use for Trinity. Godhead would be the Bible word. Trinity is a word that we use. It's not in the Bible that communicates that God exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But creation shows, first of all, God's power and his ability to create everything that we see. Secondly, it shows the Trinity in creation. So again, anyone who would say that Jesus became a, a, a God in Bethlehem or after Bethlehem doesn't understand the Bible. Romans 1, or, I'm sorry, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. But again, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, says that Jesus Christ created and sustains all things. So in Genesis 1, 1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it's actually God, the Son, Jesus Christ, was there at creation, creating, and now sustaining everything. 
You also see that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep and created water. That's the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all present in Genesis 1 in creation. So creation shows God's eternal power and his Godhead. Then you go on, and when God creates man, he says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking about? Some people say, oh, he's talking about the angels because Jesus didn't exist yet. No, he's not, because we're not created in the image of angels. We're created in the image of God. And so when he says, let us make man in our image, God the Father is speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity there, even in the beginning of Genesis. So again, God through creation makes himself known. You see, when we take a look at God's existence in general revelation, uh, we're getting ready to get into something we refer to as apologetics. Apologetics is not being apologetic for what the Bible has to say. Apologetics is the, uh, the study of defending your faith. Uh, Josh McDowell is an outstanding uh, author in this. If you've never got a copy of the book, uh, The Evidence Demands a Verdict. Uh, I ordered some from... Uh, online bookseller that haven't come in yet. They've been on back order for a long time. You can probably get on Amazon. Evidence that demands a verdict about this stick. Just talking about why we believe what we believe and how we believe it from the Bible. But there's really four main arguments that people make for the, the existence of God from what we see in general revelation, looking at creation uh, and seeing this. The first is a cosmological argument. This is a family of arguments for the existence of God that postulate that God's existence as the ultimate cause or ground or explanation of the cosmos. Everything we see is because of God. The reason is based on the law of causality, which says that every finite or contingent thing is caused right now by something other than itself. Here's the cosmological argument in a nutshell. Nothing cannot create something. Only something can create something. And so that's kind of the idea behind the cosmological argument. Uh, boiled down, it says something exists and owes its existence either to nothing or to something. Nothing cannot cause something. There is then a something which is either one or many. So if the something that creates is many, the beings would be mutually dependent for their own existence or dependent on one another. They can't be mutually dependent for their existence. Something cannot exist through a being on which it confers existence. In other words, something didn't make something else, and then they require each other to, to exist. There has to be some supreme creator out there. And so, uh, therefore, there must be one being through which all other beings exist. That being must exist through itself. What other exists through itself exists in the highest degree of all. Therefore, a supremely perfect being exists in the highest degree. Again, idea is there's nothing cannot create something, therefore there had to be something that created. Again, even if we roll it back to, quote, scientific theory, Big Bang theory, two rocks banged together in outer space created this massive explosion that spread all throughout the universe and created life from two rocks banging together. The question still begs, where did the two rocks come from? Because something can't be created from nothing. So there had to be something that created the rocks if that theory were true. And so, again, there has to be some source of all this. That's the cosmological argument. Everything came from something. Next argument that is made for the existence of God is a teleological argument. This is the argument for the existence of God that takes the starting point as the purposive character of the universe. Either the universe was designed 
or it developed life-supporting features by chance. The cosmos is either planned or accidental. One of the most popular arguments for this is intelligent design. This is a teleological argument. Hey, look, what we see here didn't happen by accident. It is a purposive design. Somebody purposely decided that you and I would have a heart that pumps blood throughout our body. Somebody made that up. It didn't happen by chance. Two rocks banging together in space after billions and billions of years don't create human beings with the ability to think and process information. Look, we take two of the biggest rocks we can find and we toss them in a dumpster and leave them there for 10 billion years. It doesn't turn into world civilization. Just does it. You got two rocks after 10 billion years. That's the idea of the teleological argument. Again, we look at the universe, the way that it's created. It didn't get here by accident. I don't know how, how many of you guys have seen the, the latest uh, telescope that we have, the James Webb telescope. It looks further into the universe than we've ever been able to see before. It makes the, the, the Hubble telescope look like an 80-year-old guy with cataracts. I mean, like, <laughs> like fascinating, right? Now, here's the thing. I'm not a big space guy, okay? Uh, and I'll just say this. I'm going to let you know, like, here's where my opinion starts, and I'll tell you when it stops in just a second. I believe one of the biggest fraud, waste, and abuse in the government is, is space exploration and space travel, okay? Look, we've got enough problems here on planet Earth that we, we don't have to worry about what's happening on Mars, right? Like, here's, and, and it, I'm, this is real talk here, okay? When we've got 21-plus veterans a day that are taking their own life, we don't need to be sending rovers to Mars, we need to be dealing with mental health of people who put their line on, life on the line for a country. When we have people being denied of prosthetics that have had their, their legs blown off in war, we don't need to be sending like, telescopes out to, to take a look at what happened in other universes. Hey, look, we got problems we need to focus on here. And, and I'm just going to say this and I'm going to move on. But the crisis that we see in America today of every act of violence that we see on our island comes back to a mental health and spiritual problem. 100% of the time. Now, the, the acts of how they're carried out or what types of devices are used to carry it out all just point back to a mental and spiritual crisis. We have problems, okay? End rant, independent, okay? So we've got this massive telescope that looks out into to all of like, the universes we can see it. What do we think when we look out at that stuff? Wow, this is incredible. Wow, look at all that stuff is out there. Did somebody stop for a second and say, all that stuff is out there. Where did it come from? Did somebody make all that stuff? If we take a look at the human body, we say, did somebody who knew a lot of stuff make this? If I, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably be a medical doctor because I'm fascinated with the human body. It's just absolutely incredible the things that the human body is capable of, the thing that the human body can do. I've officially uh, joined the old man's club, despite the fact that I'm not yet old. Uh, I am uh, 45 years old. It's a very, very young man. Uh, but uh, I, I officially joined the old man's club because I went to my doctor and got put on blood pressure medication. <laughs> And so my doctor's a really studious dude, and so I asked him a lot of questions, like how much does, does diet influence your blood pressure? How much of it is, is stress-related? How much of it is hereditary? And we had a really good talk uh, back and forth about that. And uh, so he said, I'm going to put you on a, a blood pressure medication. He told me what it was. And I said, what does it do? And he goes, well, it lowers your blood pressure. No, 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 no. How does it lower your blood pressure? And he said, it sends a signal to your body to stop constricting your blood vessels and causes them to stay loose. 
even in stressful or difficult environments, they stay loose, so it lowers your blood pressure. Well, that's fascinating. My daughter, Makili, has low blood pressure. Her blood pressure is like 90 over like 60. Like, it's like pass out like area. And so they put her on a blood pressure medication to up her blood pressure. How does that happen? And so uh, the, her doctor like, I was like, how does that happen? What, what does this medicine do? This medicine thickens the viscosity of her blood so that it's thicker and it's harder for the heart to pump. So it has to pump harder, thus creating more blood pressure. What? So I have this muscle in my chest that has been beating for 45 years without fail and sending blood throughout the entire part of my body. And now as I get older, it's having to pump harder. So we have to trick it to make it not pump so hard. And this came from a couple of rocks. Come on. Here's the thing, when I work out or I go for a run, which I hate to do, but when I work out and my body needs additional oxygen at the extremities of my body, what does my heart do? My heart needs to circulate more red and white blood cells throughout my body, red blood cells to carry oxygen to these areas and it has to get it there faster so it starts to pump harder so that my body can get the oxygen that it needs, so that when I suck air into my lungs, it gets transferred over into my blood, and my heart pumps it to the areas of my body that need it the most, and my muscles take in this new oxygen so that they can function for longer. Oh, this was an accident, though, by the way. Wait, wait. this is too, that, this is fascinating. One of the men in our church is a nephrologist. It means he's a kidney doctor. I asked him about, you know, kidneys and how they function and what happens when they fail. And we talked about dialysis for a little bit. Basically, your, your, your kidneys uh, filter out all the waste that's in your bloodstream so that you can get rid of it through, uh, through, through your body. What happens when that stops? He said, well, we have to go on kidney dialysis. I said, what does that mean? Well, they hook you up to a machine that cleans your blood and does the job of your kidneys. How long does that take? Usually two to three hours, depending on how often you have to go. And so when your kidneys fail, very, very small organ in your body, you have to be hooked up to this massive machine that will clean your blood because your blood isn't cleaning itself. And so I asked him, how big are these machines? He said, well, with technology today, we've gotten it down to the size of like a mini refrigerator, like a college dorm room refrigerator. And so this tiny organ that God created he says inside of that are like a thousand different factories that clean different parts of your blood and do all this other. We've gotten it down to the size of a mini fridge that you have to be hooked to for hours at a time, multiple times a week to just do what your body does automatically. And so us in our massive billion dollar research and, and, and development budgets, us with our massively expanded technology can only get it down to a decent sized refrigerator compared to God has done. We look at that and say, that's a teleological argument. This didn't happen by accident. There's someone who is an intelligent designer who has developed an intelligent creation. So the teleological argument means all great, all design implies a designer. Great design implies a great designer. There's great design in the world, like that of a great machine. Therefore, there must be a great designer of the world. So that's the teleological uh, argument. Another way, every agent acts for an end, even natural agents. Now what acts for an end manifests intelligence. 
But natural agents have no intelligence of their own, therefore they're directed to the end by some intelligence. Hey, we didn't create ourselves, somebody had to create us. We're smart, but there had to be somebody smarter than us that created us. We're not an accident, Uh, we are created by design. The next type of argument that we see uh, is an ontological argument. I believe this is probably one of the weakest arguments because um, it moves God from being a concept to an actual reality. It's a little bit circular in its reasoning. Uh, Therefore, it's probably not best to explain the existence or the presence of God more to explain maybe his attributes. But the idea behind the ontological argument is this. If God exists, we must conceive of him as a necessary being. But by definition, necessary being cannot exist Therefore, if a necessary being is, exists, uh, then it must exist. It's like, that's kind of circular reasoning in its case. And so I don't think it makes a great case for the case that there is an existence of God. But it explains the attributes of God. For example, holiness. None of us can be perfect and without sin. Therefore, if someone can be perfect and without sin, then they must be God. None of us can be all places at all times. Therefore, if a being can exist in all places at all times, they must be God. Those types of things help uh, from an ontological standpoint. But as far as for the existence of God, I don't think it's the strongest argument that we have. Final argument is the moral argument. The idea is that the moral law commands seeking the highest good, which leads to perfect happiness. And the idea is this. The greatest good of all persons is they have happiness and harmony with duty. All persons should strive for the greatest good. What persons ought to do, they can do. But persons are not able to realize the greatest good in this life without God. Therefore, we must postulate a God and a future life in which the greatest good can be achieved. So if our goal in life is to do as much good as possible, then there's have to be someone that gives us the capacity to do the greatest good. Another way to look at the moral argument is moral laws imply a moral lawgiver. There's an objective moral law. Therefore, there's a moral lawgiver. Somebody made up these rules that everybody agrees to. Again, you find some remote tribe in Africa somewhere, they know it's wrong to kill. How? Somebody somewhere gave them that law. Therefore, there must be someone who is a universal moral lawgiver, and for us, we would say that person is God. So that's the kind of the idea of four major arguments against general, or for general revelation, that God's revealed himself in all men. Now, when we talk about specific revelation, we're talking about God's revealing himself through the word and through Jesus Christ. Okay, we agree that we can look at creation and say, okay, there's creation. Okay, somebody created all this. Okay, we didn't all come from nothing. But the question is, who created it? Why did they create it? What did they want from me? And what is my responsibility to them? Those questions aren't answered by looking at a sunrise. Those aren't answered by, you know, understanding uh, how plants grow. So we need specific revelation. And the only way that people can get specific revelation of who God is, is through his word and through his son. This is where things get really applicable to you and I. We haven't gotten this far in Romans, but we will soon. How will people hear about Jesus if no one tells them? The answer is they won't. How will people know how to be right with God unless somebody tells them they won't? But here's what the Bible says, again, Hebrews chapter 1, God in sundry times and diverse manners, at times past in different ways, spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. 
Here's specific revelation. Yes, there is a God who created everything that we see. God has given us a moral law that you have broken, I have broken, not once, but multiple times. Because we have broken God's moral law on multiple occasions, we are in danger of God's punishment. God's punishment is death and hell. Hell is a real place that burns with real fire, that there are no second chances and there is no getting out. That's what we deserve. But God loves you, God loves me enough that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place on our behalf. That if you would be willing to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, and you would be willing to repent of your sins, you can be saved today. Saved from the penalty of your sin, saved from God's wrath, saved to eternal life. That's what we call the gospel. You don't get that by just looking around and seeing things. That's why we have other world civilizations that have created their own religious structure because they know that this isn't chance. They know this isn't circumstance. They know there's a God. They have to come up with a story that explains it. But here's the thing. God's revealed himself to us through creation and specifically through his word. Specific revelation tells us who God is, what he requires from us, and how we can live at peace with him. If you're here today, let me tell you this. If you hear nothing out of today's message, hear this. You need to be born again. You stand in danger of God's judgment because of your sin. This is what God's word specifically tells you. God is real. He loves you. He sent his son to die in your place. If you want to die on your own, you can do that, but you will endure God's punishment for eternity in hell. That's what we deserve, again. But if you're willing today to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he's the only way to heaven and I'm asking him to save me and forgive me my sins. You can be born again today. You don't have to join a class. You don't have to to come forward at a church service. You just need to believe that Jesus died for your sins, receive it and turn away from your sin and you can be born again today. Because if we take a look back at Romans chapter one, verse number 20, there comes a point where every person's 100% responsible for their own sin. For the invisible things of him, verse number 20, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It's heavy. God's revealed himself to all people, so get this, they're without excuse. So again, in the mind of an atheist, they ask the question, Well, you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. What about the people who have never heard of Jesus? What about the people in a a tribe in the Amazon rainforest that are cut off from civilization, that have never one time ever heard of the Bible, ever heard of God, ever heard of Jesus? Are they going to die and go to hell because of their sin? The answer to that is yes, because they're without excuse. That's what Romans 1.20 says. And so then the question in the mind of an atheist or other people who are questioning Christianity, how is that loving? How could God, who loves people, send people to hell without ever actually hearing the truth? It's a great question. Here's a question when it's getting ready to hit home, okay? It's been really easy to talk about atheists and what they believe and how they're wrong and all that up to this point. I'm getting ready to hit a lot closer to home with you guys here. The question that we should be asking is these people who die without the knowledge of the gospel, 
why would God do that? Here's a better question. Why would Christians who know the truth and find out about this group of people in the Amazon forest that don't know Jesus, why would we not tell them? Oh, because I just go to church on Sunday mornings and watch Netflix the rest of the week. Oh, okay. Then the problem is not God. The problem is us. Here's the facts. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. It's estimated that 50% of the world's population has never heard the gospel one time. Whose fault is that? Is that God's fault? Nope. Because the last thing that Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. And then he left. So is that on God? Is that his fault? Whose fault is it? It's mine. It's yours. Look, if there's people that you know out there in the world that don't know Jesus and they're going to die and go to hell, shouldn't somebody care enough to actually go and tell them? But here's, the, here's the, the part that makes it really uncomfortable for you and I. We don't have to go to the Amazon rainforest and find some tribe to tell them. There's people that you work with that have never heard the gospel before. But you don't bother to tell them? Look, you got neighbors that don't yet know Jesus Christ as Savior. And you're not going to bother to tell them? Please don't put that on God. Here's the fact of the matter. The majority of Christians are lazy, selfish, and consumed with the things of this world. That's the fact. And so if people die and go to hell, it's not because God didn't do enough or Jesus didn't do enough. It's because Christians just don't care. And that's shameful. And you say, what are we going to do about it? That's the reason who we call a Baptist church exists today. That's the reason why nine years ago we planted this church, so that people in our city would find out about Jesus, so that people could be saved, so that people could find Jesus, so that we could create a group of Christians who would go out into this city to tell people about Jesus and not just sit back and go, wow, I really wish somebody would do something about it. No, we're going to do something about it. You know why? Because these people are without excuse. Look, if, if people could just die and go to heaven because they didn't know any better, we'd just stop telling people. That would be the easiest thing. Don't tell them because then they'll be responsible. They're already responsible. So what do we do about it? Here's our mission. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's what we do. Well, how long do we do that? Until Jesus comes back. We don't have another mission. Our mission is not racial equality. Our mission is not, you know, the gender difference pay gap. Our goal isn't clean drinking water. Our goal isn't literacy for every child on planet earth. Our, our mission as the church, again, if we can accomplish those other things, that's helpful. But our mission is to go, win, baptize, teach. That's precisely what Jesus said to do. Because the world is in danger of God's judgment and they have zero excuses. It's a big deal. Now, so if everyone of God's creation is under God's judgment and everyone will die and they're without excuse even if they don't hear the gospel, the question that often comes up in the mind of people is, what about my kids? People often call the church or people come here for a couple of weeks and they'll say, uh, hey, I want to get my baby baptized. When do you guys do that? We don't. Infant baptism is not a biblical thing. I'll say that again. Infant baptism is not a biblical thing. There's not a case 
anywhere in all of Scripture, all of 66 books, where a child has been baptized that was not born again. Baptism in the Bible always happens after salvation, after one has confessed and repented of their sin, 100% of the time. By immersion, completely and totally underwater, 100% of the time. And it's always done under the authority of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. That's a biblical baptism. Anything else is not really baptism. Well, I remember my godson got baptized. He might have gotten wet at church, but he didn't get scripturally baptized. Oh, I remember getting baptized when I was a kid, but I never really knew what it meant, and I got saved when I was an adult. You didn't get scripturally baptized. You just got wet at church. So again, what happens to our kids? How can I make sure that my kids don't die and go to hell? A couple of things to think about when we talk about the Bible. Again, we go back to the Bible for everything. And while, get this, I'm going to help you with something today. The Bible does not speak to every single instance that we're ever going to face individually throughout all of human history. But the Bible always, 100% of the time, has principles to follow. You get that? Well, marijuana is legal in, in Colorado now. Is it okay for Christians to smoke weed? No, absolutely not. Well, show me a chapter and verse in the Bible where it says, thou shalt not smoke weed. Not there, but the Bible says be sober-minded. The Bible says that we shouldn't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. That's pretty clear, you know? So there's principles everywhere. When it comes to the salvation of our children, what does the Bible have to say? Well, it's important to note uh, that we see biblical principles that support what we refer to as the age of accountability. Now, if you do a, a, a text search in the Bible for the words age of accountability, not there. It's an idea that we have put together, again, based on principles of Scripture, that means generally the chronological stage when a person is responsible for his or her conduct before God. So it's kind of the age at which a, ch a child comes to the point where they realize, I've sinned against God what I'm doing is sinful. What I'm doing is wrong. What I have done is sin. Now, this isn't a particular fixed age. It's different depending on the individual growth of the child. And let me tell you this, parents, nobody knows your kids like you know your kids. So you come to me and say, how old should my kid be when they make a profession of faith? You know that, I don't. In our children's ministry, in, in almost nine years of ministry, we've had like two kids saved, one in super church, one in vacation Bible school, ever. And you say, well, that's terrible. No, it's not. We always defer to the parents. Now, how many of those kids have been led to Christ by their parents? Dozens. Dozens and dozens. But nobody understands these kids' framework of understanding sin, understanding Holy Spirit conviction, understanding the gospel. My son Vanderlei was three. He could tell you the Romans road, verse for verse, knew the gospel. Was he ready to be saved at three? No way. So again, there's a, a difference in knowing what the Bible says, knowing that Jesus is the only way to heaven, knowing that you, know, you have to confess your sin before God, and recognizing your sinful condition as a depraved human being, that the only hope for this life and the next is salvation through Christ alone. Now, can a child do that? Absolutely. But it's going to be different for every child based on their, their, where they're at. Nobody knows that like a parent does. And so if you've got questions about your kids, ask me, ask our children's ministry workers. They're experts at stuff like that. But don't push your kid into praying a prayer at three or four or five years old because they're afraid they're going to go to hell. Look, I'm going to walk over in that room and say, who wants to go to heaven? Everybody raises their hand. Who wants to go to hell? All hands go down. If you want to go to heaven, 
One, two, three, repeat after me. Man, you got a room full of kids saying whatever I want them to say. That's not salvation. And look, I can, I can bully and scare some kid into praying whatever I want them to pray. But I want the Holy Spirit to work on their hearts to show them their need for Jesus. I remember being seven years old. I remember Scotty Jaco got saved and got baptized. And I wanted to get saved. My mom said, why? I said, because when Scotty got baptized, like everybody clapped. He stood at the back door of the pastor and shook everybody's hand on the way out the day that he got baptized. I want to do that. And my mom's like, hang tight. No, I really do. No, you're not. And every time they say, this type of church, come forward if you'd like to receive Jesus today. I always elbow my mom and go, come on, I want to go, I want to go. She's like, "Eh, hold off. But man, I was nine years old getting ready for church on a Sunday morning, and I was wrecked by the depths of my sin. At nine, I wasn't like smoking crayons or anything like that. Like, I was just, (laughs) but man, it was heavy. I knew, I knew I'd broken God's law. I knew I was in danger of God's judgment. I went to my mom and said, Mom, I need to get saved. And she's like, well, talk about it after church. I was like, fine, I'll just, I, I know what to do. I'll go save myself. <laughs> Again, I didn't understand what I was talking about, but she was like, let me get your dad in there. So my dad opened up the Bible, went through the gospel, and my dad led me to Christ at nine years old because I got it. Nobody knows your kids like you do. So again, uh, the idea that we see, and again, we see, we see principles of this uh, in the Bible. First of all, we know that God doesn't send kids to hell. That's in opposition to his character. That's against who he is. Uh, we see when David had sinned against Bathsheba, God told him the kid's going to die because you, you took a woman that wasn't your wife. You had sex with her. You had her husband murdered, and now she's pregnant. You're going to have a kid. The kid's not going to live. So David fasted and prayed before God, and God still took the life of the child just like he said that he would. 2 Samuel 12, says this, and he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for who can tell whether God would be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David had full assurance that when he died and went to heaven, that the child that has had his life taken would be there. And so again, here we see the, the principle that this baby who was born was not baptized, was not catechized, didn't go to a class or anything like that. The baby who died went to heaven and David says, I'll see him again one day. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 10, verse number 14, but when Jesus saw it, when the apostles pushed off the kids and told them to leave Jesus alone, Jesus was displeased and said unto him, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Hey, heaven's full of kids. Whatever you do, don't push them away. And so here we see, not Jesus tells these children that want to come to him, repent of your sin, you wicked heathen. Hey, come to me because this is what heaven is full of. It's full of kids. Again, by looking at principles that we find in Scripture, we see that God's merciful in the children of Israel. There were, uh, everyone that was under the age of 19 had the opportunity to go into the promised land. If you remember the story, if you don't, I'm going to give you the quick synopsis of it. God told the children of Israel, go into the promised land. And they said, okay, we're going to send spies to find out whether or not we can make it. They sent 12 spies. 12 spies come back. 10 of them say, no way, we can't take them. There's giants, they're tough, they're bigger than us, they're not going to do it. Two of them says, we can take this. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. God's on our side. And the children of Israel voted and they said, we're not going. So God says, okay, you can wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until everybody dies except for those 19 years and younger. So God did not hold 19 and under responsible for the sins of a lack of faith. God gave grace to them. Those 19 and younger, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, got to go into the promised land. And so again, Numbers chapter 14, verse number 28, if you're taking notes, it's a, a good reference for that. Again, principles that we see. 
It's also important to note at what point one chooses evil and rejects God, that person is fully responsible to God for their sin. Look, 19 or younger doesn't matter. If you're 15 years old and you realize that you've sinned against God, you're 100% on the hook for your sin, 100%. When you realize that you've broken God's law, you stand in danger of God's wrath and judgment, there is no covering, there is no more grace, you now recognize you're standing before God. So, again, no magic number. But I will say this to, to parents. I caution you against leading your children into a salvation uh, profession at an incredibly young age. As a pastor, the majority of people that I hear that uh, have multiple salvation experiences, oh, well, I got saved one time in teen camp, and I got saved one time as an adult. Generally, they don't have a solid profession of faith at a young age. They, somebody told me that I prayed a prayer when I was four. I remember being three and being in a, with my grandma, and we prayed a prayer, and then I got baptized. Or sometimes I'll ask people, hey, tell me about when you were born again. They'll say, oh, I got baptized when I was six. Well, tell me when you got saved. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Talk to me about that. And so sometimes if people have too early of a professional faith, they don't remember it. But man, at nine, I remember being gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit, of the recognition of my sin. Um, my son Van, again, th- three years old, knew the gospel, could, could tell somebody the gospel. But nine years old, man, he was in his room bawling his eyes out. Dude, what's wrong? I'm a sinner and I'm going to hell. Hey, just relax, take a breath, you know. We'll talk about this tomorrow. And he was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to bed tonight because I might not wake up. I mean, dude was gripped by sin. You see the difference there? Now, again, only you know as a parent, you know what's best for your kids. Again, I want to love you and support you and help you in any way that I can. But again, don't scare your your four-year-old into you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity unless you say this prayer. That's not helpful. And so again, we want to teach them. Here's what we want to do with our children. We want to disciple them, make them into committed followers of Jesus, not to get them to pray a prayer when they're, they're three. Final thought here today and we're done. Authentic freedom, real deal freedom brings the knowledge of good and evil and essentially the knowledge of God or the resistance of God. Freedom comes from really knowing God. Freedom comes from God giving you the opportunity to receive him or reject him. Could God force you to believe in him? Absolutely. Could God force you to follow him? He's powerful enough. He could do anything he wants. But God chooses to allow you to worship him. God wants you to see him as worthy. That's why, again, we sang the songs we did today. You're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my praise. I see you for what you are. I see my depravity and sin for what it is. I see the world that you've created. And to think that you created all this by the power of your word, you know me, you love me, despite the fact that you know me, and you want me to know you. Yes, that's what I want. That's freedom. But by the same token, if somebody says, yeah, God, that's a bunch of rubbish. I don't need that in my life. I got this thing figured out. God says, okay, that's fine. If you keep continuing to read through Romans chapter 1, God tells you precisely what happens when that's your attitude. But make no mistake, everybody knows that there's a God. You might not know what his name is. You might not know how to access him. And that's where we come in to make Jesus famous, to make his name known throughout the entire world. But everybody's responsible for their sin. So maybe you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved. Please understand this. Your punishment is 100% on your shoulders. There's not a church in the world that can forgive you of your sins. Your baptism did not forgive your sins. Whatever some pastor told you did not forgive you of your sins. The only thing that will forgive your sins is faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. If you've never done that, today is your opportunity. 
But for those of us that are saved, that are born again, this is not a time to look, sit back and go, whew, I'm glad I'm saved. Now's the opportunity for us to say, wow, if half the world stands in danger of God's judgment, what am I going to do this week? How do I make a difference? How do I make a change? Who are some people that God's put in my life that I can tell about Jesus this week? Who are some people that need to see a real deal, authentic Christian? God forbid that somebody would ever walk away as an atheist and somebody would say, why are you an atheist? Because I worked with this guy who went to church. He had a sticker on his water bottle. He had a t-shirt that he wore. He had a sticker on the back of his car, called himself a Christian, but the guy was a low-life scumbag. God forbid that that would happen to any Christian here. If it does, there's an easy way to fix it. Repent of your sin. God forbid that anyone would ever turn off from the gospel because the way that I live my life or you live your life because we're fakes or phonies. God forbid. Let's show people what authentic Christians live like. Let's show people the love of Jesus Christ. May people walk away from an interaction with you and I and say, I've never met a Christian like that who really believed it. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for you. But it requires a commitment on our part. Let's be committed Christians this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.